Today is a very eerie episode because we're not just looking at one case, but I'm kind of going to piggyback off of our last episode, which was crazy, by the way. The three scary stories. People were losing their minds over that. (laughs) I hadn't seen that much engagement on any of our episodes in like months. When I tell you I have thought about that freaking roommate story. Oh, it's bad. It's bad. I've replayed it's that your so reaction to it. Scary. I live for your reaction to it because <laughs> you just like God. you drop all like scared, like scared, at scaredness, I guess, and you just go no, no, <laughs> like it's tribal. <laughs> it's it's like <laughs> primal. It's primal. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to I wanted to piggyback off of that, and I was like, that's kind of fun to like group three stories into one. So I was kind of going to do that today because we're not looking at one case per se. We are covering something very grim. Children who kill, which is a mind-boggling thing. It's kind of a psychological conundrum. So I wanted to pull three specific cases that I thought you would find interesting. First reaction just to the headline of children who kill. I feel like I've said before, I kind of want to vomit. And that's how I'm feeling right now. It's well, it kind of it plays into the age old question of like, is evil something you're born with or is it something that is developed, you know? So this is a little bit like I have some stats here and I also have some quotes about the psychology behind this and like violent crimes and juveniles because it was really interesting to learn about. But I wanted to break down just a couple of like or three of the most high profile cases some of which could be considered children who are serial killers. That is also very complex and interesting to me because it's not even just a one-off accident or it's, um, you know, a a child who, like, tried something or did something horrific. Like, there are children out there who have a history as young as eight years old, possibly younger, who kill multiple people. That's crazy. That's crazy. And I was going to say, I'll be really interested to see what the age, like if there's a pattern with each of these cases. Oh, for sure. I mean, I'm trying to think of all the cases that I looked at. I would say, I mean, the youngest that I saw that could be bucketed into serial killer, and I'm sure there are younger in history, but the most publicized and the most modern was eight years old, I think. It's a child from, uh, from a farming town in India. And he i think they caught him and confirmed that he was responsible for like three murders but it's theorized there might have been more isn't that crazy that's crazy can i send you a picture of him actually hold up i do i do have pictures for this as well so this is going to be really interesting oh god God. no 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 <laughs> Creepers, go back Literally and play me in slow mo. <laughs> it's no. somewhere around like it's somewhere around like the thirty minute mark or something. But like I couldn't get enough. I was like, <laughs> it's, it was just so primal and perfect—a perfect reaction to that. All right, <laughs> let me send this to you. So I'll drop this in the chat. This is 
a picture of one of the youngest known serial killers, the one who they believe they confirmed had killed at least three other children, one of them being his baby sister. (gasps) And it's theorized he may have killed more. I'm I'm just going to say this and I hate it, but there is a darkness in his eyes. This is why I, I grabbed pictures of all of these kids, because I could almost say that about every single one of them. Yeah. It's really interesting to look at pictures of them from when they were at the age when they killed, because you can almost see like a vacancy or like a like they've mm-hmm. they've glossed over like this one. Hold on. Let me send this to you. This is. Oh, God, I don't know his name, but I do know that he he was convicted for killing like an opportunistic killing of like a little boy on a bike ride or something. And I think he was like 10 at the time that he did this. <gasps> do you see what I Pause. mean though? Can we just, why do all serial killers have the same glasses? It's It's yeah. It's a very, well, maybe this was like eighties or nineties, I guess, but it is that shape though. It's yeah. very like, um, not it's like aviator. Yeah. It's like, uh, Edward Kemper. I think I'm thinking of, do you know who that is? That sounds really familiar. He he's gruesome. Oh, Edmund, sorry, Edmund. Okay. Like look him up. He's he's got these types of glasses. And it's very like um yes. Jeffrey Dahmer, like it's it's that style. Yes. Ed it's Kemper weird. is a like- gruesome gruesome case. It's really bad. Well, the first image I just saw of him, he's like laughing and I'm already just my stomach is churning he's um he's also huge i don't remember how tall he was but i think it was something like six five to six seven or something it's enormous Mm. nothing is scarier than a tall serial killer yeah that's really that's dark but so we're gonna be getting into some fun stuff today everybody (laughs) with kids who kill (laughs) but before we do i'll just say welcome back Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for sticking around. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Creep Time. I will, before we get into this, preface that I know this is an especially dark episode, and I know this is not something that everybody can stomach. So if this is not the story for you, we have plenty of other episodes of Stu and I chatting about Gilly Hicks and Hocus Pocus. They're there. (laughs) But if this is something that you're interested in, if you want to learn a little bit more about the psychology behind these cases, Stick around. And for anybody who is new here who is not already, please make sure that you follow and subscribe to our podcast. You can follow on Spotify or Apple. You can subscribe on YouTube because that really, really does help our show to grow much quicker. Same with reviews. Whenever you leave a positive review, we love those. We read through them. And just to push it one more time, Reddit is up and live. So after this episode, if you want to talk about any of these cases, Suggest new cases for us to cover. If you want to talk about old cases we've covered, you can join us at Creep Time, the podcast on Reddit, where we're going to be right after the show. And with that, madame, I feel like that was a really succinct, like, read of that. Did I do well? Is that good? (laughs) You did great. I I, I, I was just going to (laughs) say. I was like. Okay. In my newscaster era. Yeah. baby. Yeah. Damn. (laughs) Well, you know, I was going to say that I really want to encourage creepers like I know they're very active already but seriously like I am so I think sometimes podcasters are like we look at the reviews and we want to interact with you and then it's kind of like a hit snooze like I want to be up in that reddit looking at what the creepers have to say (laughs) because they're freaking sleuths 
They are. They're sleuths. They have the best case suggestions, like almost everything we've gotten from Autumn Baby, from Kendra. Like those are the first two that come to mind because every single case I see from them, I'm like, it is a slam dunk. Like it's such a juicy, intricate story. And I think that's a testament to how well they know our patterns and like what we like to cover the different like points, Mm -hmm. points of a plot or points of a case that we like to hit. So I agree with you. Keep those suggestions coming. Hit us up on Reddit, Mama, because we are there. We are there oh, reading through I love everything. It. And oh my God, do you hear this military plane going by? Could you hear that? If it's if it's not the ice cream truck, I you don't want it. I have selective hearing. Now so, okay, the I ice see. Cream truck. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> God. Um. All right. And with that, are you ready to get into these three cases involving kids who kill? I am ready. Okay. So the first story that we're going to look at is one that I covered a while back. And this is the case of Joshua Phillips. He is the perpetrator. His victim was eight-year-old Maddie Clifton. Do you know that story at all? I don't. It's, it's a bit older at this point, but I'll just give you a little bit of his early life, and then I'll talk a little bit about her murder. This one is especially sinister, um, given the circumstances of how he hid the body, I will say. But before I get into it, I just want to send you a link to pictures of both of them, just so you can kind of place okay. who they are. Hopefully that will help. All right. So this is a picture of Joshua Phillips. Looks pretty normal. I think he was... 13 or 14 i have to double check his age at the time that he killed her all right so that's joshua phillips let me get you a picture of maddie clifton Hmm. so this is a picture of his neighbor maddie clifton and i'll get into some pictures a little bit later because i actually have pictures of the bedroom that might color the story a little bit more can i just say this is it's shocking to look at him because With the other two that you sent me already, there was that vacancy in the darkness. He doesn't have that look. He looks he looks like he has promise, you know. Well, what's interesting about those two pictures I sent you is that those were obviously taken post murder. And this picture Mm -hmm. of him is taken pre murder, which I mean, many could probably argue that's inconsequential. But I think that that plays a big role in a child's psyche for kids yeah Yeah. the the second you kill i think as a child especially in the way that we'll get into the way joshua phillips killed her i could imagine that drastically changes who Mm -hmm. you are like Mm -hmm. i can send you actually let me go ahead and send you his mugshot post kill to see what you think of that and then i I will get into his backstory joshua phillips let's see It is devastating to see pictures of the victims, but I found that really useful while I was doing the research here, just to place everything. All right. Where is his mugshot? Got it. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, give me one second. Let me open this up. And how old was he? I think he was 14. Okay, 14. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. All right, sending this to you now. So this is his booking photo i believe after he was found guilty or after he was brought in and assumed to be the killer oh god oh stark I'm, difference i'm also gonna say i mean there is a stark difference but he looks like he I, I mean listen i don't know anything yet but he almost looks 
just almost like remorsefully and like shocked. And he doesn't know almost what's like, like what he's done what he kind of did. like maybe he's yeah. gone. It's let me get a bit into his backstory. Cause I think yeah. he can be thought of in, in a different category from the other people that will cover the other children. Um, okay. Not to say that like there could be differences in abuse and the outcome, but I think his abuse, what we know of it, might have been different from the abuse seen in the other subjects we're going to look at. So Joshua Phillips, he was born in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and this was March 17th, 1984, to Steve and Melissa Phillips. Now, Steve, his father, this is important, was a known drug addict and alcoholic, and he was also very violent towards Phillips and Melissa. Um, both reportedly lived in fear of the father. Steve was also an extremely strict parent, and he imposed a lot of rules on his son and would get angry if he had other children in or around the house, specifically when he was not present, which plays a little bit later into this story. Particularly, he really disliked young girls, and it's not clear why he had this thing for young girls or like didn't like them, but that was that was what it was. Now, eventually, Steve decided to relocate the family, and they move all the way to Florida, which had separated Josh from his half-brothers Daniel and Benji. On November 1998, Phillips was 14 years old. He was living with his family in Jacksonville, Florida, and the neighbors described him as a very kind of a quiet kid. He was a friendly kid, like pretty normal and positive, just your average 14-year-old boy. According to Maddie Clifton's mother, she never once suspected that he would be a threat or there was any reason to believe that he was dangerous or that they should be afraid of him. He had no arrests. He had no history of violence prior to this murder. And even his teachers at school said that he was kind of popular with other kids. He did not stand out as a troubled kid. They described him as fun, as silly. So where does all of this go wrong? So this is the actual event of the murder. According to Phillips, when he was later questioned, the date is November 3rd, 1998. He was home alone when Maddie Clifton, who lived across the road, came to his house asking him if he wanted to come outside and play baseball in his yard. So Joshua Phillips agreed to do this even though he knew he was not allowed to have friends over when his parents weren't home, like I said before. As the story goes, as the two were playing baseball, Phillips accidentally hits the ball and it hits Clifton directly in the eye. And she apparently started bleeding. She was crying. She was panicking, as a little kid would do when you get hurt. Phillips then panicked, knowing that his father would be home soon, and fearing his reaction to him not only breaking the rule, but accidentally hitting a ball into his the, the younger neighbor's eye. She was eight years old. He panicked and decided to stop her from screaming by beating her with the bat. According to his story... He then dragged Clifton's body into his house, claiming that while he was doing so, her clothes came off of the lower half of her body, which we'll get into a little bit later, and then hit her again with the baseball bat in his room to stop her from screaming because she was still alive, and hid her under his bed. Then his father returned home, and reportedly, Phillips and his father had a very like normal interaction for a period of time in the kitchen, talking about their day, and then Phillips goes back to his room realizes that Maddie Clifton is still alive under his bed. So now he's really panicking. So he removes his mattress and he used some kind of a leathering tool that he had in his room, slit her throat, 
and stabbed her multiple times in the chest, a total of seven. That is the event that we know took place, and by that evening, 5 p.m., Maddie Clifton is reported missing. Initial reaction just to the brutality of that and his supposed motive. This is the first time I've ever gotten like actually emotional <laughs> on the podcast. It's a Ooh, lot to throw um, your way versus some spooky stories in the woods. It's certainly a gear shift, Ooh. which is why I gave the warning. Listen, I gave the warning to yeah, everybody. Yeah. I know you can't escape my warnings, but I, I can't. I can't. And that's you just why logged you the hell the off. Big bucks. <laughs> um, it's just, it's crazy to think that he had no prior history of violence to this and it's quite the leap and if we're thinking about it and we're getting inside of his head here in that it was completely fear motivated it's like solve the immediate problem she's screaming i'm panicked the reaction of my father he hits her with the bat realizes what he did realizes the consequence of beating this girl whether or not he knew she was dead or intended to kill her is possibly going to be even worse once his father finds out so the next i guess a logical move in his mind is like take her body inside She's still alive. I have to just get rid of the problem. Get rid of the problem. Start stabbing her. I really do think that it's also this age of 14 years old where it's like, I almost feel like had this exact circumstance happened and he was younger, he probably wouldn't have gotten as violent or maybe would have even stopped after a certain point. But I feel like he's getting into like adolescence manhood, like he's coming, mm-hmm. he's probably starting to feel, you know, the feelings of being stronger and becoming a man. And it's just, I think that that's. Yeah, he's twice her size. She's Yeah, eight. yeah. And, oh God. But I really do, I hate to think about that because I feel like had he been younger, it probably would have stopped earlier and she could have maybe potentially lived. It does get, I will say before I go further, it does get a bit worse because the situation now is that she is dead. He slit her throat. He stabbed her. Her body is stuffed under his bed in the corner under his bed frame. And like I said, let me pull this research back up. By 5 p.m. that evening, she is reported missing. So this is when they kind of start the search efforts. Police and volunteers would search for Maddie Clifton for a total of six days where the Phillips family participated in the search including joshua all while she is under his bed every night he is going to sleep on that bed with her body tucked underneath it decomposing he later stated when he looked back at the following events that he was living in a state of perpetual denial for those six days i was putting myself in a fantasy world where nothing had happened that was my defense mechanism for everything when i was a kid I never made the decision to ignore it. I just did. Then on November 10th, Melissa Phillips, the mother, she goes into her son's room and she smells something kind of strange but can't really figure out where it's coming from. She ends up noticing a wet spot on the floor that is kind of seeping out into the carpet from underneath the bed. She then got down on her hands and knees to search under the bed where she came face to face with the six-day-old body of eight-year-old Maddie Clifton staring back at her. She immediately ran from the home, screaming, and called police. Phillips was then pulled out of school midday and arrested on site and then would confess to the murder just hours later. And I actually, I do have a picture of the bedroom. It's not graphic or anything, but Mm -hmm. I do want to send this to you just so you can see what she saw. Let's see. 
So this might be a little bit, this might be difficult for you to discern like what you're looking at, but allegedly this is the staining that the mother saw coming from under the bed six days later. And then this is a picture of what his bedroom looked like prior to the discovery. And then I have one more picture of when they had to clear out the entire room, basically, for evidence. So this is after they found her and they removed the body and they removed his mattress and bed frame. Oh, my God. Ooh, looking at that room empty is it's just chilling. so chilling. It's chilling. Now, I will say we have to get into this part of the story because there was a detail I touched on a little bit earlier that we should go a bit further on because she was found without clothing on the lower half of her body, which opened up a whole can of worms about whether or not Joshua's story was true. Because this kind of sounds almost like it started as an accident and then spiraled into murder. Yeah. And then there are other people, the prosecutors, who are saying this looks sexually motivated because she's found without her pants or her underwear on. To his claim, after he initially hit her with the bat in the yard, he had basically dragged her body inside and said that while he was doing so, her pants and her underwear rolled off of her body and he couldn't stop because he was so panicked about the body being out in the open in his yard. He just had to get it inside. This did not seem consistent with the way the body was found because there were there were no um, grass stains, there was no dirt, there were no scrapes on the lower half of her body, which kind of indicated not somebody who was being dragged through a yard, but maybe somebody who had their bottom clothes removed after the fact. However, following the autopsy, there was no evidence of sexual assault, so they could not prove this. It's just kind of it's just kind of an inconsistency here as to whether or not we actually believe joshua's story or there was something else that was going on here i don't know how do you feel about that what's your gut telling my, you my first thought is that it's a, a curiosity thing mm-hmm. especially given his age again i feel like that's the age where you're starting to think about you know sex and like there's a curiosity to know you know about girls and i mean i, I wouldn't be if if we found out or if he ever confessed that he just took, you know, her clothes off to look at her, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be shocked. Um, and it was still, I mean, it was like, a, I, she wasn't even dead at this point, I guess. But like, it was kind of thought of as like a postmortem violation, but not like a textbook sexual assault, I guess, yeah. is probably how they could make sense of it. It's interesting that he would confess to the murder, but would attempt to like skew his story to conceal that part of it. Yeah, I mean... I was going to say, I feel like maybe confessing to murder at that point is harrowing enough to then add the cherry on top that you stripped her to like, look at her. I mean, maybe you're, maybe that's, you don't have to add that. You've already said everything that you needed to say at that point. He still does maintain, he maintains to, to this day. I mean, he's been in prison a long time, but he maintains that his story that he told was true. But there was another inconsistency here I wanted to call out. So It looks like the prosecutors noted that there was no blood found in the backyard or on the baseball that Phillips claimed struck Maddie Clifton, like that, you know, spawned the whole thing. So they kind of argued that maybe this was more premeditated than they thought, you know, like there might be a different story here Mm. that maybe he had intentions to hurt her. But I, I mean, 
it's possible. It's it just seems kind of shockingly unlikely for someone who had no history of violence. The the story of like the accidental like I hurt her, she's crying, I'm panicking, I'm going to get in trouble, spiraling into like a violent outburst and then the aftermath of that, the silence of that is like him taking off her clothes as sick as this is. Like Yeah. That made a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I can I can see that kind of clearly. How do we know how close they were? Like they were just neighbors. Like they weren't like they didn't hang out consistently. I think they hung out as like neighborhood kids do. Like you probably have that experience like growing yeah. up. Like you're friendly with your neighbors just based on like proximity. But there's a huge age gap there. Like eight and yeah. 14 is not like friends. It's like, let's go play like like pig together. Let's play basketball. Let's play baseball or something. Yeah. Something I think about that, that was the nature of the relationship. Something about that gap is also just hitting me in my gut. Um, because yeah, eight to fourteen is a lot. He also like knew that she was so much younger and probably going to be like helpless, and so you do yeah. have to take that into account. Like after he started, after he hit her, his his human instinct wasn't oh my gosh this poor little thing that i have that's so much younger than me that i've just hit the instinct was this poor little thing and now i can just like pray like i know that sounds kind of sick but i feel like that's just that's so telling about someone's psyche i agree i agree i think that's the right mindset of where his head was probably at hold on i'm actually going to get into i have some details here sorry (laughs) i'm just joking (laughs) Ugh, I'm sniffling. I'm choking. I was going to say, I think our bodies are about to start having like problems. <laughs> like when, when when you start hearing stuff like this and you're just like, I can't process. You're, I'm okay, that's, this is why you have to take breaks. and You have to like insert levity because you start to, I've noticed this for myself. You start to physically manifest like your feelings of horror in listening yes. to these stories. Like I, I genuinely feel sick sometimes reading about these stories there was a time like two years ago when i first started doing this that i like went on live and i was like i'm taking a break i was like because i felt like i couldn't sleep from all the true crime i was reading and i'm like i don't want to do this right now i don't want to do this right now (laughs) so creepers if you need a sip of water if you want to pause and take a break if you want to watch a few cartoons please do so but Stu, i'm gonna make you press on (laughs) make you press press on on. (laughs) i'm if i need to vomit i'll let you know (laughs) Well, this will get into the actual trial. So here's like the justice portion of the story. And then we're going to switch over to our next one. So Phillips was tried as an adult. This is important for like Florida's like judicial history. The trial was moved from Duval County, Florida, all the way to Polk County over concerns of the publicity in Jacksonville because it was like a media circus. The Phillips lawyer, Richard D. Nichols, did not call a single witness to the defense. That's very interesting. It is a move that prosecutors prosecutors would later go on to say was a surprising and risky strategy. Nichols intended to base much of his defense on his closing argument to the jury where he made, basically made a stand that Maddie Clifton's death was an act that began as an accident and then deteriorated into panic and then bordered on madness. Mm. According to Joshua Phillips, his lawyer, Nichols, never attempted to question him even once on the events of the murder when he would visit him in prison. He just came and played chess with him during visiting hours prior to the trial. Now, Melissa Phillips, the mother, disagreed with this strategy, but she was butt up against Steve, the father who insisted on just letting the lawyer do what they do. 
Nichols discouraged Phillips' parents from allowing him to testify in his trial, and accordingly, he never spoke once. So the trial starts on July 6th, 1999, and only lasted two days. This is an unusually short time, and it was mostly attributed to them calling no witnesses for the defense. The jurors took only two hours to convict Phillips of first-degree murder, and he was later sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, which was the alternative option to what they were seeking, the prosecution, which was the death penalty, which he was not eligible for because he was under 16. During the trial, the defense attempted to introduce scans from a neurologist showing bilateral lesions on the frontal lobe of Phillips' brain, which are associated with panic and impaired judgment. But the prosecution also wanted to discuss additional evidence to support the angle that this was sexually motivated because they found evidence of some pretty graphic porn that he had looked up on his computer. The judge, however, ruled both pieces of evidence inadmissible. So where does this leave us? Phillips is sentenced. He goes to prison. And he would later go on to kind of make a a full pivot in prison and became what they called a model prisoner. Mm -hmm. He ended up getting his GED. He ended up taking college classes via written correspondence. He becomes a paralegal from within prison and started to help people, other prisoners and inmates with their appeals. And reportedly, he participates in a lot of prison activities. He has a job in prison. He is in a prison band. He participates in worship and wellness and mindfulness activities. So in text, he is kind of a model prisoner. So it's a bizarre dichotomy to think about how grim his past is in contrast to, like, I guess what you could call uh, internal rehabilitation. I don't know. How do you feel about the sentencing and how this kind of played out? Yeah, I am I have a thought right now and I'm like going to try to articulate it, but it really is. It feels like they nipped it in the bud, like whatever that thing was that was starting to neurologically mm-hmm. happen with him. And it, for me, begs the question, like how much of it is environmental and how much, like you were saying at the beginning of the podcast, is innate, like you're born with it. Um mm-hmm. And I'm struggling right now with Phillips, like wondering if this was a, it almost feels like it was purely environmental. Like, I think he's probably was born a good person and then unfortunately had this terrible situation at home, an abusive father that he was repeating the behaviors of. And then Mm -hmm. now he's in prison and, and I really honestly feel like there was a neurological shift. I agree. I agree. It's interesting, too, that they were trying to present something from the neurologist saying that he had lesions on his brain, because I do remember this from previous podcasts I've listened to. There is a very um, there's some evidence to support. And obviously, the case studies are small because how many serial killers and murderers are there out in the world? It would seem like a lot, but statistically, mm-hmm. it's it's far and few between among our society. So thank God. Easy. <laughs> but, <laughs> but there is some statistical significance to a pattern with early head trauma in childhood like a kid and it could just be like a concussion or like a kid like hits their head on something and that in tandem with an environment that's already kind of grooming them for abuse or violence or neglect or they're becoming socially isolated it's those two like facets working in tandem mm-hmm. that typically spell out serial killer later down the line it needs to ha- there's some sort of physical inf- affliction to the brain that works with those environmental factors like you're talking about. 
I mean, I, it really, this episode, as gruesome as it is, is really fascinating to me because I just think the brain as like an organ being able to mm-hmm. just develop that way. And we all have different patterns of how it develops. It, it really does. Of course, there are people that are just going to be, they're bad and they refuse to make adjustments in their life. But there are some people that are just like, just born with a brain that's going to develop wrong. Yeah. I Have we ever talked about epigenetics on here? We talk about that before? I don't think so. Epigenetics was something I learned about in college, which is really interesting for the conversation of nature versus nurture. Epigenetics is a theory um, that there, if you're an offspring of, of two people or two animals, you can be born with inherent traits, mindsets, um, feelings, and fears about certain things based on the way your parents' brains formed and were affected in their adolescence and in their adulthood, which is crazy. So it's kind of like the idea of like, I'm born with like a a predisposition to like a medical, like I have like cancer that runs in my family or something. It is the same concept, but applied to the actual psyche of a child. And they found this through doing a test, if I'm remembering, with um, rabbits. And this is kind of, this is full on animal cruelty. But what they basically did was they tried to there was a rabbit that they conditioned to like eating cherries and halfway through the experiment before they would breed her, they gave her a shock every time she tried to eat a cherry. After that, the babies that were born when they were old enough to be tested for this, they presented with cherries, had a complete aversion to them. Hmm. Born with a complete aversion and a fear to something that caused the mother distress. So it's that theory kind of working in this case where like, if his father was already an addict, if he experienced trauma, if the mother experienced trauma, that could set the stage for a brain that has a predisposition, if it receives abuse, to go haywire and do something horrible. That's fascinating. Do you know I heard recently the only thing that you're born fearing or like universally every human being is a snake? <laughs> I don't really? know if that's true. Yeah. It, doesn't that sound almost like uh, like Adam and Eve? Like it's... It, <laughs> this is becoming a, a neurology I was, podcast. <laughs> I know. I was thinking. I was like Indiana Jones. It's Indiana Jones. Like, and you're you're like it sounds like Adam and Eve, and I'm like, so not Harrison Ford of the Temple of Doom. Okay. Okay. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, we sound very heady right now. I did not expect this to sound so articulate. We're like, what is it? What is it in Harry Potter that they speak? They speak. Um. You didn't. T- you could parcel speak parcel tongue. tongue. Parcel. Parcel tongue. Uh, parcel tongue. I no. Want Wait. Okay. Can I give you a moment of levity? And I swear, Please. I'm getting us off track. My. I remember. Actually, no. It's too long. It's too long. We got to move on. It's too long. I'll tell you off air. Okay. Well, uh, just to button up Joshua's story to tell you like what happened. Like I said, he still remains in prison to this day. He has tried to appeal um, to get parole many, many times. He has been denied. Uh, I do not believe that Maddie Clifton's family has ever forgiven him. They have no interest in like receiving an apology from him. And he has stated that he would like to apologize to the family, but does not feel that it's right to send them a letter. It would be something he feels he has to do in person to explain, you know, what he, like his terrible thing that he did. And to give you just a little bit of follow-up on what ended up happening to that abusive father, he ends up getting killed in a car accident on June 27th, 2000. So 
Oh, I did have some stats here. Okay, this is interesting. I have some research from the National Center of Juvenile Justice just discussing some of the most common factors, like we were talking about, that can contribute towards juvenile crime that is violent, like murder. Statistically, like I said, this is extremely rare for juveniles to do something like this. So in Joshua's case, it was most likely that early exposure to violence at home, the emotional abuse, and possibly an early introduction to either witnessing or participating in the substance abuse of his father and possibly porn. So all of this in tandem with that underlying mental health issue, like I was talking about, spelled a recipe for a disaster. And he had a a fluke inclination for violence that took the life of a nine-year-old. So, all right, let's take a deep breath. I was like, that's story number one. (laughs) I was was like, Jesus Christ. Um, Oh, I mean, I didn't mean to do this, but the final one that I picked, the victim does survive. So that's, I don't want to say that's a happy ending, but it's a better ending than most. But the next person that we're going to look at is the murder of a nine-year-old, Elizabeth Olton. And she was killed by... Alyssa Bustamante. I think that's how you say her last name. That's a female. A year old. Female killer. Female. Female adolescent killer. Wow. Very interesting. I, I had looked at a couple of cases specifically with like young, like female, young female serial killers or young female murder, first time murderers who were like children. I mean, I, I think of the case of um, Mary Bell. She was an eight year old who killed like multiple toddlers. And was like, I mean, talking like really grisly stuff. Like not only was she killing them, she was leaving her mark in their skin to like let people know I was here. She would carve an M into the body. Talk about dark. Dark. I Talk about dark. Yeah, that's. I feel like eight years old. Like what? I feel what, like bite like, marks are like common sort of at that age, but the carving into the skin is just sinister. Of an M too. Like I want people to know I did this. I was here. Yeah. Leave my mark. Like some, that is something That's so, horror so movie. deep and scary. So Elizabeth Olton, this one, I suppose is also kind of a, a little introspective to think about it from like a psych perspective, but I'll just give you some of the backstory about who this was, who the perpetrator was and how all of this came to be and really how she accidentally confessed to it. Now, Elizabeth Olton was a nine-year-old who was murdered by her neighbor, Alyssa Bustamante, who was 15 at the time. And this took place in St. Martin's, Missouri on October 21st, 2009. So Bustamante had lured Olton into the woods before she strangled her without without you know prompt or warrant just like grabbed her from behind strangled her and then began to stab her to death this 15 year old bustamante had murdered olton simply due to homicidal ideation they would later find out meaning she just wanted to see what it would feel like to kill somebody she was later indicted and pled guilty to second-degree murder and armed criminal action and was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of conditional release in 2024 for this murder. However, due to her additional conviction after the fact of the armed criminal action, even if she was granted a conditional release in 2024, she would still have to concert, or she would still have to serve a consecutive sentence of 30 years in prison, which would put her earliest release at 2054 so she would be about 60 years old so this is the history 
of how this event happened in 2009, what went down. So Olten, the nine-year-old, she lived just four houses down from Bustamante. Um, This is October 21st, 2009, like I said. Bustamante had basically convinced her younger sister to go get Olten to come to the forest behind their house and go hang out. To be clear, I don't think the little sister was privy to this knowledge or or was present for, like, what happened. I think she was just used as, like, a a chip in this game to, like, oh, Mm -hmm. go tell her to come over and, like, hang out with us. Because it's, like, it's not creepy if, like, you do it, but it's weird if I do it because I'm 15 and she's 9, right? Mm -hmm. So, basically, she lured her out into the woods behind her house, strangled her, slit her throat, stabbed her eight times in the chest, and then buried the body in a shallow grave that she had dug five days prior in the woods behind her house. So this was super premeditated. And then covered the grave with leaves and debris. So just a bit of backstory about Alyssa, this girl. She was living in this town with her grandparents, Gary and Karen. They took legal custody of her when she was just three. Or actually, no. How old was she? I can't do the quick math of how old she was, but she was younger for sure. It was 2002. So how old would that make her? Quick math, quick math. Seven, eight, I think. Yeah, about eight years old. Her three younger siblings, 2002, they took custody from her mother, Michelle, who had addiction issues, and her father, Caesar, was serving time in prison. It is not entirely clear what other abuse might have been going on prior to them losing custody. So friends started to notice some real changes in Alyssa around 2007 after she was hospitalized for trying to take her own life, which would have put her at age 12, 13. So she's going, she's having some very serious like psychological downfalls early on in her life. And she also had a YouTube channel at this time where she listed cutting under one of her hobbies. She had also posted photographs on Facebook and other places around social media where she was constantly holding two fingers up to her head to pretend that she would shoot herself. So she was already having these kind of like suicidal ideation, like thinking about taking her life at a very young age and started to feel very disconnected and desensitized from those around her. This started in 2007. This takes place two years later. So after the murder, this is when we get some of the most compelling evidence that she keeps that eventually outs her. Actually, should I send you a couple pictures of them? Real yeah, quick? I'm dying to see what she okay, looks okay. like. Absolutely. I totally forgot. I was like, why do I feel like I have photos of this? It's because I do. It's absolutely because I do. So this is a picture of Alyssa. Some people, I think some people said it was like Alisa, but I, I think her name is pronounced Alyssa. That's how it's spelled. So that is her at age 14, 15. This is a picture of her victim, who is nine-year-old Elizabeth. (gasps) Oh, I just got full body chills. Oh, my God. Not an easy episode to get through. But this is the craziest part about this. I mean, unless you have, do you have any initial reactions just to like the dynamic here? The scent, it's such a senseless motive. It's so senseless. And it's, I know I, that's exactly what I was going to say. I was just going to say this, this girl was in so much pain, so much pain, like more pain than probably most people go through in, you know, their first 30 years on earth. And she's, you know, how old is she? 11. 
the killer or the victim? Yeah, the killer. Killer. She was 15 at the time that she killed. Oh, 15. Okay. Yeah. Oh, God. So And much when pain. all of these, these like really dark thoughts and like the, you know, attempts to take her own life started, that was right around like 12, 13. So kind of just the shift into becoming a teenager was when really everything started to go down for her. But basically, so here's what the evidence of how we can piece like the timeline together, because we know we know eventually like what happened in those woods, right? After that happened, she apparently went back to her room and wrote in her journal something that she would later attempt to scribble out, which I have a picture of this as well. I'm going to send it to you. Came in with all the evidence today. Okay, I'm going to drop this to you in the chat. So this is an actual picture of her journal and what she tried to scribble out. So Creepers... She wrote in the journal, I just killed someone. I strangled them and slit their throat and stabbed them, and now they're dead. I don't know how to feel at the moment. It was amazing. As soon as you get over the, oh my God, I can't do this feeling, it's pretty enjoyable. I'm kind of nervous and shaky though right now. Okay, I got to go to church. LOL. Later that night, she would go and attend a church dance because she was heavily involved in her local church with her grandparents. And I believe it was the following day that police came searching for Olton and asked questions. Now, the search involved dogs, firefighters, police, helicopters, and eventually the FBI and the use of highway patrol. And they were actually able to search by tracing Olton's phone, the nine-year-old. She had a cell phone, which they think was still on her person. It was geolocated somewhere in the woods between her house and Bustamante's house. So they end up interviewing the Bustamante family, and they had their suspicions about Alyssa despite her very young age, but this eventually got them to get approval for a search warrant, which is when they confiscated the journal, and they saw it in black and white. She admitted to the murder. She had killed a nine-year-old girl in cold blood. So the subsequent trial and conviction and eventual appeal that goes down here, her first court appearance, I think, took place... November 17th, 2009, she came in and she pled not guilty um, despite being indicted on first degree murder and armed criminal action. Is there a plane going by? Yeah, there's a plane going by. (laughs) It's Joe, Joe and Kamala. They were like, we need to pull y'all out. (laughs) Yeah, they were like, let's let's take a break, honey. Let's take a break. I don't even, how do I toss this over to like ad breaks for this? This is so much. I know. So, do you okay, realize she's in. Yeah. I what? was just going to say tomorrow is, it'll be 23 years since this happened. I didn't realize. Oh, shoot. You're right. I'm just looking at that journal entry. No, not, oh. not 23 years. Is that 20? No, that's not 23 years. 2000. This took place in 2009. Oh, maybe she wrote, I think she wrote her nine, like a zero. It looks like a zero. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. Gotcha. Wait, is that an October 21st or is that an October? Her penmanship is wild. I know. I think that's October 21st for sure. Okay. Yeah. She goes, I have to go to church at the very end. Interesting that she scribbled out everything except Except I got to go to church. That's what's that giving me chills. Fascinating. That is so, I didn't even notice that when I first pulled the picture. Ooh. So 
Like I said, she's indicted on the murder and the criminal action because there was a knife that was used in this murder. And on January 2012, she ends up taking a plea deal for a lesser charge of second-degree murder and armed criminal action. It was a few weeks later that she was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of conditional release for the murder and then the consecutive sentence of 30 years for the armed criminal action. Her appeal against this sentence was denied as of March 2014. The victim's mother also agreed to settle a lawsuit, a lawsuit that she filed against the Bustamante family. Um, And the terms of the agreement require the Bustamante family to disclose any compensation from any press coverage they do regarding the case and regarding their granddaughter. And this goes for the siblings as well when they become of age. Alyssa was also seen by several mental health professionals at the time of her trial who testified that she was suffering from major depressive disorder and also had verified personality disorder or borderline personality disorder. Sorry. And that is where her case stands as of today. Gut reaction to that. It's really hard. I'm like trying to imagine as a creeper, like hearing this, it it like you want to make sure you're not overly empathetic and sympathetic just because they're children but looking at the photos of her like with the really you know the heavy eye makeup and knowing that she cut and all that stuff it's just like this was truly somebody that was crying like out for help like and just didn't get the help you know like truly did not get the help in time let me send you a picture of her um, now from court because it's kind of interesting to see. Again, like it's interesting to see the before and post murder photos. Mm-hmm. Even just looking at the scribbling on the journal, like how deep she is scribbling with that pen. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like severely just I don't know what could have happened early on in her life and nothing could, you know feasibly justify what happened here but it certainly feels closer to an explanation because this is so deeply senseless this is a photo of her from her trial Mm. and you can see like i mean she's completely vacant like she is somewhere else Mm -hmm. (sighs) sorry i'm just looking at pictures of her now no 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 i'm thinking i'm doing that thing where i'm just like thinking myself like ruminating because i'm just like yeah. it's it's really this whole episode is truly out of everything we've ever covered this for me is the most like unbelievable it it is it's difficult like i said before it's a psychological conundrum to think about children who kill because it seems like killer and child can never go together yeah so it's bizarre and like I guess, disturbing for a listener to hear about these stories. But thus far, we've covered 14 and 15-year-olds. And I was going to take us to our final story, which goes a bit younger, because I debated on what I should pick for this, because there are, if you can believe it, far, far more graphic cases of children killing children. Mm. Some that were so graphic that I was like, I don't think I can cover this yet um or if i did i would have to go into further detail about like extensive psycho evaluations about like what's been done on these perpetrators on these children there are children that kill in packs like in pairs like they usually coerce other people to do it with them which is actually our next story because i was going to bookend all of this with 
probably the most infamous case of attempted murder from a child, the Slender Man killings, or stabbings, rather. Do you remember this? I feel this like is this, I definitely, I've definitely heard Slender Man before. Well, you've heard of Slender Man, I'm sure. And I'll get yes. into the backstory of, like, that lore, because that is of the elk of, like, creepypasta and, like, horror fiction. But how that that and that internet culture partially informed the actions of two very young girls, I think, like, 10 and 11, to attempt to kill another girl as, like, a sacrifice, it's very disturbing. To, you know, to preface before I get into the story, the victim does live, which is crazy because she was stabbed 19 times and left for dead in the woods. 19 times. So this is the backstory of this. Now, it will involve the girls Anissa Wire, Morgan Geyser, and Peyton Lautner, who is the victim. So first, let's talk a little bit about what Slenderman is and kind of the birth of the internet lore so you have context. Slenderman is a tall and featureless kind of entity that was made and debuted as like a fictional character. Um, this is on the Something Awful online forums back in 2009, but I think there are traces of this lore that like go back even further. It was a part of like a Photoshop paranormal image contest, but the image and the silhouette of Slenderman caught a lot of fame online and it sparked the imagination for people to like add to the myth and create more fiction around him so he has this very eerie appearance he wears the black suit he has faceless white head and sometimes like a menacing tentacle and his whole thing in the lore is that he takes children so essentially what happened here to set up what prompted these girls to do this anisa and morgan they were speaking with someone online in like a forum or a chat setting, probably an adult who was posing as Slenderman and was feeding into the myth, possibly thinking that they were feeding into the myth as well and that they were all on the same page, that this was fiction or this was cosplay or this was something of, of the like. And he told them, I need a child sacrifice in order for you to join me in my mansion kind of thing. These two young girls who were already, as we would learn, on like the fringes of their social circles, like pretty disturbed, suffering from pretty extensive uh, mental health troubles at a very young age, actually younger than most kids are diagnosed, and they were not being treated for these things. They believed what they were told from this adult. So this opened up a whole floodgate about like the safety of the internet and monitoring if you're a parent. But nonetheless, they were told you have to get a child, you have to make a sacrifice so that is what they did. So this then bleeds in to the stabbing incident. It is the horrifying real-life event that unfolded in David's Park, which is in Wisconsin on May 31st, 2014. It was supposed to be an innocent game of hide-and-seek, and it involved these two young girls, Anissa and Morgan, and they were with their friend, what they thought was their friend, Peyton, when suddenly they attacked Peyton, and they pinned her to the ground, and they began stabbing her, a total of 19 times using the five-inch blade they brought with them. She was gravely wounded and assumed to be dead. So after the attack, it is believed that Morgan and Anissa then left her injured in the woods, and they set out on a disturbing mission on foot, because this is what they were told from Slenderman. The goal 
was to then go find Slenderman and tell him of what they just did. And that was his sacrifice. And they would live with him in this imagined mansion somewhere in like the Nicolette National Forest, it's supposed to be, which is hundreds and hundreds of miles away from this location. So the the logic is like not quite there, even though these are girls that are not like the age of children, but they're still very young. Like mm-hmm. they're old enough where you would think they can discern between what is fiction and what is real life, what is a problem, what is not a problem based on like logistics, location, etc. Now, the mental state of the two girls, once this is all uncovered, faced a lot of um, intense scrutiny because nobody could fathom how these two girls were able to do this. And it was premeditated, clearly. It was found that Morgan, Morgan Geiser uh, had a history of hallucinations at the time, and it included the persistence of an unnamed voice or figure that she saw that she named it, who was reminiscent to Slenderman. So for her, the line between reality and fiction was already getting blurred, and she was not being treated properly for this uh, mental health crisis before these attacks. Both girls were actually charged as adults because I think when they looked at the other girl, Anissa, she pleads guilty. Um, And what was found not guilty, shockingly, by mental disease or defect for her age and her mental incompetency because she was diagnosed with schizophrenia, which had also gone untreated for months, and she was slipping into a sense of psychosis. So basically, it was a recipe for disaster here where we had these two girls who were abnormally abnormally mentally ill for their age who were then coerced into something online which they thought was their reality mm-hmm. and then killed an uns- or tried to kill an unsuspecting friend this is so bizarre i just watched a movie called the world's fair or like we're all going to the world's fair and it sounds like it was based off of this actually but it's about it's, a i mean this is really popular in media Okay, it must be because yeah. it's about a girl that starts playing a game online and then starts to like hallucinate and there's like someone that's like telling her how to behave like in the real world, but she like thinks she's still in the game sort of like as she's in the, like everything starts blending together. Du- direct parallel, yes. direct parallel to this. So I have very, I like just watched this movie. So <laughs> you are sending me on this episode. My anxiety right now is at a high, like... <laughs> I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Well, it's spooky it's, season. I had, I had to go season. hard. You have to. You have to go hard. Um, because some, some of these the creepers sometimes they're like, you guys like play it nice and like you do stuff that's like very top level, and I'm like, I will show you how dark this shit gets. We are time on forty one. Mode is difficult on this episode. <laughs> we are on difficult mode. Um, I think what's so troublesome about this is where are the parents? Well, I mean, there's definitely, there's so much more information. I could have done a whole, like, three-part episode on this. I had to keep some of the information top line to say, like, this was, like, this is the context of, like, how they were coerced into this by an online personality. I would be fascinated to hear if they ever, garbage truck is here. I don't know if you can hear that. (laughs) But I would be. I hear. (laughs) I would be fascinated to hear if they were ever able to track down or trace who that person was who was coercing them online. Because whether or not he thought it was fiction, there are very real consequences for that action if you don't know who you're talking to online or even worse if you do if you're aware that you're talking to adolescents i do have a picture of these girls can i send it to you yeah dropping it in the chat so this is from their booking photo so this is the aftermath (gasps) after they were caught oh my lord 
again with the glasses. The glasses, it seems to be a, a feature. Maybe it's something we need to look into and we need to I know. study on. But I think it is the girl on the left who was the primary attacker in all of this. I could be wrong, but I'm, I think it was her. She even looks like the girl in this movie. It's freaking me out. It's, def- it's definitely based off of that. It has to be. 100%. Like, look, can I send you a picture? Yeah, please. While you do, I'll just tell I'll get into a little bit about what the aftermath of this is because their victim does live and the consequences were tragic, but it extended a lot further than the crime itself, I would say. Wait, did you just drop it in? I did. Is it from Bing? Do you use Bing? I Well, I think I tried to send you... <laughs> I'm about to get red. <laughs> I... <laughs> I, I did send you a bang link. Oh my god. But I meant to send you just the image. But doesn't her face kind of look like the girl? Yeah, it's the ooh, this is scary. Oh, I don't like this. I know. Does she wear a mask in the movie? She ends up like she starts like painting her face with like black like paint, like to look like a creature, like online. It's weird. I have to send, first of all, I'm gonna steal this and make a creepypasta out of this picture, but I have to send you this picture because what is this in connection to this movie? You would know because you just watched it. Yeah. What is this mask that she's wearing? I just dropped it in the chat. That's I'm, scary. I'm forgetting. <laughs> I'm literally forgetting. <laughs> no context. Or I can't remember if it's maybe that she thinks that's what she sees of herself, like looking at the screen. And it's not. Like that's not her face. But she's looking at herself. Oh, that's thinking, creepy. Yeah. The helicopters are out, sis. I hear them. Uh, honestly, creepers, this is how you know our anxiety is a full-time high. We're like, there's a garbage truck. It's Joe Biden. There's just a plane. I know. My senses are like level 10. Same. Everything around me. I hear every pin drop. But to shift back into this, just yeah. to like piece this together, like what happens and like what is the legacy of the case and whatnot. So let's see. The consequences of the case. It ignited a national debate around the role that the internet can play in children's lives. Law enforcement officials and experts highlighted the need for parental oversight for online activities and educating children. But I would say more importantly, if I could interject here in these notes, um, the importance of keeping a tab on your child's mental well-being. If they're mm-hmm. showing early signs that they could have schizophrenic tendencies or they're having hallucinations, they're talking about seeing things, that is a child that needs to be evaluated by a medical professional, a psychiatric professional, and possibly be on medication to help them. Because what this girl, what both of these girls were probably experiencing in silence or in, like, the fueling of each other's company was clearly disastrous and horrific. And there was a girl who almost lost her life because of it. Now, like I said, this has a legacy in the media because it went on to inform lots of documentaries, a TV series, movies, like you were talking about. And it is just a very chilling reminder of these blurred lines between the online world and reality for some children. Now, I think if I'm correct on this, I'm going to look it up in real time. I'm pretty sure one of them is getting released this year. Wow. Let's see. I hope they're a model she, prisoner, like our first person. Like Joshua? Like yeah. Joshua. I think it, she's being released on a condition, I think. Let me look at the news on this. She's being released. Only one of them is. And she's going to be on house arrest, I think. Or she's going to be tracked. Like she's going to have to wear a tracker. So Morgan, oh no, Morgan withdraws her petition to be released. Oh, wait, maybe this is a new update. 
I feel like I never have this many like noises going around with the trash and whatnot. But this is okay, like this wild. is what remember I told you this morning. We're living living a parallel life because this morning we had a gazillion trash cans and so much sound, and I was like, "What is going on?" It's just like aggressively obnoxious today, and it's I swear it's usually not this bad. <laughs> I haven't had the ice cream truck once, not once. He's like, "I am not sticking around for this episode." Oh my God, I totally forgot. I know, seriously. I forgot that I went out there the other day because I was like, I wonder what the actual name of his business is. And I got, I like had the name and I'm, of course, I didn't write it down. Now I'm forgetting it because I wanted to like promote it on, on here and be like, if you see his, his ice cream truck in LA, make sure you stop. Like, it was like, oh, God, it started with an M or something, but I'll get it. I'll get it. Because um, yeah, this is his route. But it looks like stabbing case to just release. Let's see. So, Anissa, they were both 12 at the time. Okay, so I got that wrong. They were both 12 at the time when this happened, and I think when they were tried. And Anissa is granted conditional release in 2021. And then it looks like Morgan withdrew her petition for release, if I'm reading this correctly. Okay. But it sounds like they were... I don't want to say like handled lightly, but definitely, I mean, for lack of a better term, handled with kid gloves in this, because it's interesting to see on a state by state basis, like how the states, based on the severity of the crime, handle juveniles who commit violent crimes, because some of them take the approach of rehabilitation and potentially trying to like reintroduce them into society. And some cases in some states really try them and treat them as adults. You know, like the thought that Joshua Phillips was potentially going to be put up for the death penalty as a minor is kind of shocking. It is. I mean, I feel, I, yeah. I, I feel like as a judge and jury, they must go through what we're kind of going through right now. Just like, it just feels so, what do you do? Cause it's so unexpected. And how do you treat, like, I really feel like it's a case by case kind of basis. How do you treat children in a case in cases like these, what is correct? What's the right protocol? Like, you're right. You're right. It's like, I, I almost kind of tell me if you agree with this. I almost kind of feel like it's difficult for us because we like to categorize things when we're looking at these cases and looking at killers. It's really difficult to categorize and qualify like a child killer because we we have we it's so seldom that we see that that we don't actually have like a benchmark in our minds of like, Okay, because if you see a serial killer in a trial who's an adult, you relate it back to all of your previous knowledge of famous serial killers. And you think about, like, the mindset, the abuse, like, the the backgrounds they came from. We have, like, no roadmap for most of these children. It is case by case, like you're talking, like you're talking about. Well, and the roadmap is the parents. But you can't, you know, that can't really inform too much when you're a juror. You (laughs) You're looking at the evidence, not speculating about the parents, but that's your roadmap. Well, it's interesting because there are cases too, and I didn't bring any up here, but there are cases where there really is no history of like abuse. And there are children that somehow still have a propensity to want to kill. And that kind of goes without explanation. Like it deviates from our theory that like environment equals bad Mm -hmm. kid. Mm -hmm. Like I think of Graham Young, the serial poisoner who was like socially isolated and he was um he was from England. He was socially isolated and like really fixated on chemistry from like a young age, like seven. I remember eight. you telling me about him. 
Yeah, yeah. There's no history of like abuse, neglect. He came from a very nice home, but he just had an inclination to just want to start poisoning people, his family. He was institutionalized, and then they thought they had rehabilitated him. They reintroduced him to society, and he started working at that company and tried to poison the whole company. (gasps) Oh, my God. He put himself on coffee duty. I remember. That's it. I remember you telling me that. Oh, my Mm -hmm. God. And that. Think twice before you go for the company brew. Think (laughs) twice. That is dark. I will say, moment mm. of levity, I am not going for the company brew these days. Something. No. <laughs> whoever is brewing our coffee, I'm like, girl, we need to go to class, barista's class. Because oh, this is bitter. <laughs> thank you. M- most coffee. Honestly, I'm trying to get away from Starbucks these days because it's so seldom I go to Starbucks and I like don't get a, p- a cup of coffee. And I'm like, oh, this isn't burnt. It it's burnt. always burnt. Why is it burnt? I don't know. Wow. It didn't used to be that burnt. Maybe I think my coffee cha- well maybe I should take into account and qualify that like my coffee tastes have changed as I've gotten older. Like we probably drink similar cups where we take like black coffee or like cream only. What do you get in your coffee? I usually get, get a little bit of milk and then I put a Splenda. A Splenda. I do no sweetener ever. But I used to. When I first started drinking coffee, it was like the more cream, the more sugar, the better. Mm-hmm. So it's not shocking to me that now I'm like, this coffee tastes burnt. I'm like, maybe if I'm just comparing it to old Starbucks, I just had loaded it with a bunch of stuff no, to mask it's, it's the burnt coffee. It definitely has. To, I mean, this is a case for Nancy Stew. We're going to figure Nan- out what Nancy Stew, I need you roast. on the ground. Boots on the ground. Lats. <laughs> Boots on the ground, Nancy <laughs> Stew. Oh, my God. It's absolutely. Star- Creepers need to sound off on this. I think it definitely has changed. <laughs> The roast. Can I tell you an unpopular opinion of mine about fast food coffees or like drive through coffees? Of course. I, you may disagree and that's fine. I love McDonald's coffee. Are you kidding me? If somebody disagrees with you on that, I judge everything about but them. But they do. But they do Who? though. They're like, well, just because I mean like it's, you know, it's got a connotation like, oh, it's coffee brewed at McDonald's. Like, how could it ever be like groundwork or like Pete's, you know? And I'm like, you don't get it. I'm like, it's Mm-mm. actually really good for me. It it does it for me. McDonald's. It it for me. I feel like that's one of the the best kept secrets. I don't even feel like it's a secret anymore, but McDonald's has an amazing cup of coffee. I think it also has like one of the highest caffeine contents, like of any fast food coffee you can get. So it certainly does the trick. You know what I mean? Like outside of the taste and like the aroma, all of the notes, like it definitely puts some pep in your step. Yeah. That's going on merch too. (laughs) I was going to say, talk about a perfect storm. You and I both had a cup of coffee before this episode. That's why we're still drinking it. I'm still going. I, I know. Heightened anxiety. Talking about three different, not even just one case of child murder, child serial killers, but like three. Three. Back to back. Happy Halloween. That was spooky as hell. I'm not actually going to be walking around my apartment pacing, I feel like, for the next. <laughs> it's a, It was a good conversation for us to have because I yeah. feel like it's kind of seldom. There are so many details to cover in these cases that they kind of take a step back and just look at like the baseline of what happened, like cause and effect it leaves a wider window for us where we can have conversations like this and talk about the psyche behind each child. 
or what most likely was going down there. I think it'll be really interesting after this episode for it to color the way we look at adult serial killers too. Totally. Totally. Just kind of wondering now that we know about these cases, wondering when that flame kind of ignited in them. Like at what, what age? What the average age is for that? Do you think there's like an average, like a statistical, a stat on that about like for serial killers, what is the age when most of them make their first kill? Let's look this up. Yeah. If I had to guess, I would think around like puberty time, like when you're starting to really, your brain is changing a lot. But I, I was don't know. say early to mid 20s because that mm. I was tying it back to like when schizophrenia serial killers are predominantly male and most men who become schizophrenic, they show signs in their early to mid 20s. So I was going to say that would probably it. Let's see if there's a stat. What are the stats? Um, also, did the pictures help in this or was this yes, making it yes. much worse for you? Was this well, I mean, it made it worse, to- but it definitely helped me to... It's amazing how much you can really tell about somebody from their eyes. Oh, the statement, a picture tell a picture is worth a thousand words mm-hmm. is not strong enough for like how effective these yeah. photos are at like giving you context to the story. Let's see. According to a study published in the Journal of Criminal Justice and Behavior, the average age at which serial killers start killing is 28. However... There is a wide range of ages, with some serial killers um, starting as young as 14 in the U.S. and others not starting until their 40s or 50s. Oh, I had a thought. I was like, is that the Golden State Killer? But I think the Golden State Killer had been killing for a long time before Mm -hmm. that. I think he was younger, like in his, I think he was around this age, like 28, 29. I I feel like, yeah, your late 20s is very much a, I I guess what I was saying was I I thought that maybe initially like that, that urge maybe is born like when you're kind of becoming a more like charged person anyways, just hormonally and things are happening. Like a like, true adolescent, like yes. becoming a teenager. Yeah. yeah. And I wonder if like, that's like when the seed is sort of like planted and then maybe when your brain, cause I guess your brain kind of also is fully formed by the time you're in your late 20s maybe that's part of it at 25 25 for most men yeah so maybe it's like that's crazy then it's when you actually act on it i i don't know i'm just thinking i was like this is what gay men do when they reach their late 20s and they're about to turn 30 (laughs) they just like start serial killing stop Stop. because it's just it's so daunting turning 30 that they're just like end of the rope like (laughs) (laughs) Let's try something new. So bad. <laughs> it's foul. That's foul. But it's not incorrect. This is cue the ice cream truck. He needs to come by. I know. I just had to. I couldn't leave us on such a dark and seedy note. But this mm-hmm. was a really, really. I'm really happy we talked about this because this was interesting from a, like a psychological perspective to talk about these kids. But also, I feel like we don't often do some like live sourcing of like stats on these things. So it's it's interesting to put more context to it with this. Yeah. 28 is the average so interesting i feel like it'd be really interesting if there's any creepers that are psych uh majors or yeah (laughs) serial killers oh my lord or have any sort of you know background in this to sound off i think that would be really interesting i think we have a couple of creepers who work in the mortuary space um Mm. 
whether they're they're medical examiners or they're like funeral directors. And I've always thought I'm like, that is a really interesting episode for down the line to talk about funeral homes and the process and just to like, I'm sure there are some like eerie and creepy stories in there, but I'm more so just fascinated about like the history behind that. Mm -hmm. There is a really crazy ass case going on right now. And this has happened before. I don't know if you've seen this in the news about a green, do you know what a green funeral home is? No. I mean, it's it's under it's like an umbrella term. There are lots of things that can be cons- like considered uh, like green funeral services, but I think what it's most commonly associated with is like green burial, which means you're not embalmed. Your body is allowed to like you know decompose and break down naturally. You're buried in something that's eco friendly, or you're cremated and then planted into a tree. Like it's the whole focus is that you're not putting harmful chemicals into the earth. You're not taking up additional space. Or if you're doing so, you're in like a vessel that can break down and like decompose with the earth, et cetera. Basically, there is a green funeral home. There was one where something happened. I think their cremation, they were offering cremation services. Their cremation machine broke or something. They're really powerful industrial machines. And like they let it slip and bodies just started like piling up and they didn't know what to do with them because it was like a weird thing of like, we, how do we cart all of these bodies out in order to get somebody in here to like fix the cremation machine? But also like we need the cremation machine to like get rid of the bodies, but also like we've been providing like ashes of nothing to families. Somebody uncovered this. There were something like 128 bodies found in this funeral home that were just decaying in a room in closets. Crazy. Crazy. See, no, no, <laughs> literally no, <laughs> no. Jesus Christ! And with that, next week we're going to be covering <laughs> the debauchery of the failed cremation service and green burial. This is not against green burial. Green burial is fantastic. This is against <laughs> a funeral home. The that's idea not of bodies <laughs> properly disposing of bodies. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> We will be back next week. Anything to say to the creepers as we say farewell? Creepers, should, don't should we go have back a cup to of coffee Clavelle? when you listen to this. <laughs> don't do this. Take it from us. Something is not right. Something is quite wrong. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> also, and can we, I just say, I remember after we signed off and you or you were saying that last time, I was like, wow, Silas's falsetto is fantastic. You're like something is quite wrong. I had to give you a little. I had to give you vocal. I was like, it couldn't just be not for nothing. It's got to be a little vocal. You were like, and with that, something is quite wrong. It came out of me. It was out of my control. Is all I can say. It was Miss Clavel took over. I was nothing but a conduit, and she had a message for all of the creepers. Well, normally I'm thinking about the case that we just covered when I go to sleep. And I can tell you last week, I was just thinking about you riffing. Good. Okay. I'm happy I left you on that note. Yes. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) So stupid. Such a bad joke. (laughs) Okay. I'm slap happy. I have to let everybody go. Thank you guys so much for listening. We will see you next week. Gear up for Halloween. Bye. Bye, guys.